Amen. Well, it's good to see you guys today. Today we arrive at chapter 4, verse 4, and our study through the book of James. Now, for you detail people, we looked at the second half of verse 2 and verse 3 earlier in the series, so I can still say that we have covered every verse so far. Let's get right into it. At this point, James becomes even more animated in his call to stop playing around at Christianity and get serious about following Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4, James, the brother of Christ, hits us right between the eyes, saying, Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's so much there. But what we're going to do is draw out four important truths that I will restate as equations. We'll handle the first two of these today and the other two next week. So this is a two-part message. Like all the best little house on the prairies, it'll be to, can, to be continued uh, next week. But uh, in this paragraph, James basically gives us several if-then statements. And you may notice that in each of these if-then statements, the catalyst is choice. If you choose this, then you can expect God to do that. I like scripture of this kind because I like to know exactly what I can count on. I like to have realistic expectations, and this passage makes expectations clear, both in terms of what God expects, as well as some things we can expect from Him. But before we look at those four equations I mentioned, there is another important truth to notice running in the background of these verses, and the title of my message will give you a hint, God first. God never says you first. He always says me first. See, even though we just read about several different positive results that can be expected if you're willing to make certain choices, the only reason those choices are before you in the first place is because God has already acted on your behalf. Just remember this, God always goes first. He loved you first before you loved him. And he acted first in making himself available to you and me through Christ. God always goes first. He is the first great cause. Everything else is effect. Isn't it amazing that even though God is universally first, he decided to put us first in many ways. This is what's so scandalous about the gospel. God came to die for us because we, before we gave a rip about him. And so even though we're going to talk about making God first in our lives, and even though we'll be looking at the positive results we can expect if we do put God first, 
the fact is that God already put us first in the first place or else we wouldn't stand a chance of putting him first in the second place. See, every choice we make for God is a response to what he has already done and is doing in our lives. Maybe I'm confusing somebody, but hopefully this truth will come clear as we go along. Let's get into the first of our four equations from our text. From verses 4 and 5, we see that friendship with the world equals enmity with God. The, the word enmity means exactly what you think it means. Enmity is the relationship of, in, of enemies. Enmity is the opposite, the precise opposite of friendship. James says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, first off, I want to make sure everyone understands that this is not new terminology James is using. God referred to his people as adulterers and adulteresses throughout the Old Testament. And he did so whenever they strayed. One of the ways God expresses his frustration is to, to ask one of his prophets to call out the people on their spiritual harlotry. Throughout history, God would do this whenever his people started putting other things before him. Or whenever they failed to serve him or neglected to follow him or forgot to love him. James echoes the Old Testament prophets here, but that does not make it any less pointed. Remember, he writes this to the church which he pastors. Can you imagine your next email from me? <laughs> Beginning with these words. No, I can't imagine that I would ever do that. But James does not pull any punches. In fact, it is clear that Pastor James absolutely intends to portray God as angry here. Yes, God does get angry when we practice idolatry in our lives. While on earth, Jesus showed anger toward idolatry as well. Fellow believer, when you make other things more important than God in your life, when you fail to serve him or neglect to follow him or forget to love him, don't kid yourself. He still gets angry with you. Yahweh is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. We're studying the New Testament right now. And James is writing to the church of Jesus Christ. And yet we see God is still angry with his people. Angry enough to basically call them names. I mean, this is inflammatory speech from God. I don't want you to miss this. Honestly, a more modern translation of this would probably just offend our delicate sensibilities to an extreme I don't want you to have to experience today. When, when we hear adulterers and adulteresses, we don't, we don't really get the effect that the original audience did. You know, and I mean, if, if I really wanted to communicate the intensity of this passage today, I'd almost need to translate this as you are all a bunch of and fill in the blank with something a little less civilized than adulterers. I'm not being sensationalistic. Our ears are dulled to the insult this really was. Yes, I believe that God is angry here, folks. And like it or not, he has James resorting to inspired name-calling. We love to declaw God these days and to muzzle him. But when we do that, we wind up painting our own inaccurate picture of God rather than really understanding better who he is. The biblical God gets fighting mad when his bride wanders off and flirts around with the world. James continues, 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And here we come across a subject that I have found many people struggle with, especially in the younger generation. Many postmoderns, say from Gen X through Gen Z, get very upset at the thought that God could ever be jealous. I've often pondered why this is so hard for younger people to grasp. And the best theory I can come up with, besides the fact that most of them have never read the Old Testament, is that they really don't understand how much God loves them. It's kind of a removed kind of thing. They don't understand the intensity of God's love. I think that's the bottom line. We really don't get how God feels about us. And yes, God has emotions. God has deep feelings. We may not completely understand God's feelings, and they may not be exactly the same as ours, but the Bible is very clear that ours is a very emotional God. But emotions are not. Many of us don't want to think of God as jealous. Maybe you think there's a way around this verse. Must be one of those. It's different in the Greek. But this is too important for me to leave you unconvinced. The Bible is full of verses, like Exodus 34, 14, which says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So Moses tells us even the name of God declares his jealousy uh, to his people. Another verse says his jealousy burns like a consuming fire. Our God is a jealous God. And this refrain, refrain reverberates throughout Scripture. But what is this jealousy all about? Well, this type of jealousy happens when someone you love and someone whose love you have a right to receive is being taken away from you by someone or something else. And who or what is it that takes us away from God and thereby becomes the object of His jealousy? The overarching generic word for that which takes our affections away from God is referred to in the Bible as the world. God's jealousy burns against the world because the world is a metaphor representing everything in our lives that is not surrendered to Him. Let me say that again. In verses like these, the world represents everything in your life that is not surrendered to the will and purposes of God. Everything that's not a part of the advancement of the kingdom of God, both in you and through you, is by default part of the kingdom of this world. You only have the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. If it's of the kingdom of this world, it's not of the kingdom of God. So what happens when our lives are more focused on the things of this world rather than on God and His agenda, His kingdom? But we begin to be a part of the problem. We begin to work against God and we become his enemies. When you and I are sucked back into worldly ways of thinking, worldly ways of living, worldly desires, worldly purposes, worldly passions and pursuits that detract from our relationship with God rather than enhancing it, we become adulterers or adulteresses who have betrayed our first love. And folks, as long as we stay in bed with the world, we will be joined with the object of God's jealousy. 
Not a good place to be. Did I just say something about staying in bed with the world? Oh, this line has multiple facets of meaning today. Let me ask one simple question to everyone who is not here today. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but maybe, maybe somehow it gets out there. Are you going to the grocery store? Are you eating out? Are you going anywhere else in a mask? <clears throat> then why are you staying in bed on Sunday mornings? Somewhere, somehow in our lives, putting God first has got to have something to do with showing up at his church. Even though you have to wear a mask. For most of us, for most of us, there are certain situations that make perfect sense. But for most of us, it's time to get back to church, folks. Now, I probably just made somebody mad, but that's kind of just what I have to do sometimes. Pastors have to be a little bit like prophets sometimes. But there's a deeper issue here. We'll never understand God's jealousy and the heart that would lead God to call us out as adulterers and adulteresses until we are swept away by just how deep and how personal his love is for us. You'll never understand God's jealousy until you're overwhelmed by his love for you personally. I think something has happened through all of the creation debates and the apologetics books and all the arguments for and against God and maybe even to some degree in all of our theological education. And I've been in the thick of all that, but I'm afraid something has happened to our image of God. Have we forgotten that ours is a personal God who, whose love is the archetype and the ultimate source of all the real love that we have ever experienced in our lives? Even the passionate, romantic love I have for my wife. Even the deeply emotional, gut-wrenching, impossible to explain love I have for my kids pales in comparison to God's love for me and his love for you. He created us. We're created in his image. God's love is the source of all the true love in the universe. His love is to our love what the sun is to daylight. God is love, said the Apostle John. And every ounce of love on earth simply is radiation from him. And yet we stray from this love and chase after other things. God's love becomes unrequited in our lives. The God of the universe holds out his love to us and we do not reciprocate. Too often we don't even notice his overtures because we're too busy flirting around with the temporary passions and pleasures of this fleeting world. An atheist denies God's existence an agnostic isn't sure God exists. Deists believe God exists, but that he's removed and doesn't really care. 
And then there are believers like most of us here today, but I think that a shred of agnosticism and deism has crept into the minds of most modern believers, even if you would never say something like, maybe God isn't even there. Or if you would never say, God doesn't really care. I wonder if any of us really grasp how much he cares and just how there he really is. I'm afraid, I'm afraid we've spent so much time talking about God as a concept or even observing the awesomeness of God in nature or simply trying to understand more about God from the Bible that sometimes we forget He is the great lover of our souls all around us, right beside us. And in the person of the Holy Spirit, even inside us as believers, loving us as His very own children. The Apostle John embraced God's love as well as any writer of Scripture, and he wrote this in 1 John 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. As the psalmist wrote, How great is God's love, so much higher than the heavens, and His faithfulness reaches to the sky. Whitney Houston apparently understood this. In a 2002 interview with Diane Sawyer, she discussed the pain and frustration she felt in her failed comeback attempt. At one point in the interview, she turned to Mrs. Sawyer and asked, have you ever heard the sound of 10,000 people disappointed with you? Hailed as one of the greatest vocalists of all time, Whitney Houston once stood atop the music industry as the unchallenged queen of singers. Her fans were thought to love her. But when her abuse of drugs and other related habits finally robbed her of that golden voice, the cheers turned to jeers. She'd risen to the pinnacle of admiration like few others, only to have it all melt away as soon as her flaws were revealed and she lamented the rejection. Even so, in that same interview, Whitney Houston declared emphatically, I know this, Jesus loves me. This was a declaration she would assert repeatedly, even at the occasion of her final public appearance, appearance the night before she died. It was almost as if that was all she had left that she could hold on to. She rightly questioned the love of her fans, but... There was one thing Whitney Houston did not question in the end, the love of Jesus, the love of God. And she was right. God's love for you is beyond measure. He is forever faithful. As one popular worship song puts it, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And like many of you, I question the use of the word reckless as an apt description of God's love. But when you hear the song's author explain both his story and his, his reasoning, it works. Recently, a famous music critic spontaneously came to Jesus live and on the air while he was trying to critique that song. You can watch the video on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. Fact is, God choosing to love you and me is the most reckless thing he ever did. The cost 
was insane. It was reckless, not in terms of a lack of planning, but in terms of the fact that it led to the death of his son to save others. You are always on God's mind. He can do that with all of us. You know, many today criticize any comparison between romantic love and the love of God. But in so doing, they also criticize Scripture, which does just that. Unless you think the Song of Solomon is just kind of not really supposed to be in there. And there are other places. God's love for you is passionate and fiercely diligent and undiminished by time. God's love for you began before you were born and will continue for eternity. He is jealous for you. He wants you to be near. He loves you. I'm talking about the love of a God who would die to save people who didn't love him, even knowing most would reject or ignore his invitation. God's love for you means the greatest love story of all time. Sorry, Twilight fans. <laughs> Even if Edward's immortal love for Bella were real, it could only be a shadow of God's love for his people. Not incidentally, that is the very reason love stories are appealing. Not because of real life human experiences, but because there actually is a perfect love in existence. The love of God. The best love stories are merely allegories, intended or unintended, ringing true and filled with hope only because of the unearned, unstoppable, forever faithful love of God. Listen, if you are one of His by faith in Christ, then you're His most treasured possession. You are the apple of His eye, the center of His attention, and the love you can choose to return to Him is His greatest desire. Will you leave the God of the universe wanting? Will you rob God of the love and devotion he deserves? Will you not return the love he first gave to you? You see, God asks nothing of us that he does not give us first. Isn't that crazy? God asks nothing of us that he doesn't give us first. God wants your love, but you already have his. God wants your devotion, but you already have his. God wants your loyalty and your faithfulness, but you already have his. How are you responding to his love? When our God calls us out as adulterers and adulteresses, he does so from the position of faithfulness. And he continues to await our return. Like the prophet Hosea, he faithfully waits for his prostitute wife. And he waits, even while we use up and waste our years on things undeserving. But make no mistake, our God does not wait emotionless. Oh no. And friend, hear this, God, does not blame anyone but you for the decisions you make. Friendship with the world equals enmity with God. Why? How can I be an object of his passionate, faithful love and his enemy at the same time? 
If you look closely, that's really what this says. And we need to understand. The point is that if God did not love us so much, he would not care so much when we leave him. That's why this is all wrapped up in the idea of, of jealousy. A complex concept even in human terms. Let me try to explain it like this. God's jealousy is focused on whatever takes you from him. But even as that thing or those things become his enemy, since you're so wrapped up with them, you become like a temporary enemy to him as well. You might ought to be concerned about collateral damage when God comes bursting into the bedroom. You may not like my imagery there, but I really do feel it is perfectly in line with the emotional charge James is putting into this teaching. The admonition is to come home soon or risk experiencing whatever it means to be at enmity with God right along with the world. The world is taking you from him. God loves you too much to let you go so easily. Now the second thing we need to work through a little bit more is what is meant in, the, in this passage by the world. In my view, this passage and similar ones are often mis misinterpreted. And so I need to spend some time telling you what this doesn't mean before I talk more about what it does mean. Notice that James does not say we cannot have friends in the world. Or that we cannot be friendly with people who do not know Jesus. And he certainly isn't saying we shouldn't reach out to people in the world or find common ground with them as that was the major evangelism strategy of the great missionaries of the New Testament. Remember the Apostle Paul basically attended a sort of pagan worship service where he stopped just short of acknowledging the deity of an idol at one point so that he could open the proverbial door to tell those Athenian philosophers that the real God is not found in an idol or a statue. Oh sure he got to the truth eventually. But he also knew they'd never listen to him in the first place if he didn't meet them where they were. The biblical missionaries went to great lengths to find common ground with lost people folks. An Easter egg hunt or a fall festival on Halloween is absolutely nothing compared to what the apostles did in order to get the gospel to the people of the world. And so, we need to understand that our text for today speaks against friendship with the world, not friendship with the people in the world. My goodness, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So obviously the world he, there does not mean the same thing that it means in our passage today. In John 3.16, it means the people in the world. Not in our passage today. In this type of context, our scripture today, the world is used to represent those things that can steal our hearts away from God. The overall idea, overall idea here is about where your loyalty lies where your thoughts go and where your heart is this is about keeping god first even in a world that does its best to steal all of your attention your affections your resources and your time jesus was known as a friend to sinners he didn't hole up in a church house somewhere make everyone outside his little club feel like second-class satan worshipers 
We need to get this right. Salt needs flavor, but it also needs proximity to do any good. Flavorless salt is worthless, true, but so is salt kept in a shaker. We need to take the salt and the light to the darkness. Hide it under a bushel? No. And so, even though James uses the word friendship here, he's not talking about people in the world. Unless your relationship to a person or certain people is getting in the way of your relationship with God, that's a different story. But James' reference to the world here represents a metaphor for anything and everything that leads you away from God. He's talking about priorities. He's talking about what drives you. He's talking about what you, uh, want to, who you want to please, uh, who you're living for. He's talking about who you love the most. He's talking about how all, all of that plays out in the simple little choices of your everyday life. The issue here is your relationship with God. Is God first or is golf first? That one was for me. Because I didn't play golf for about the last three years because of my hips and at all. And I used to play quite a bit and I just started playing again and I'm really enjoying it. It's like, because three years of not, you know, whatever you love to do, if you take it away and then, you, you know. So that, that was for me. Is God first or is golf first? I need to be making sure I'm not airing that. Is God first or is being an outdoorsman first? They tell me my, my mask is, is virtue signaling because I put a strip of uh, camo tape on there. Cool. Uh, <laughs> is God first or is social media first? Is God first or are your kids first? Is God first or is the football game first? Oh, I'm really making myself popular now, right? By the way, I may change on this later, but for right now, I am so done with professional sports. <laughs> for many reasons. First of all, the excess. I don't know, this whole thing has caused me to relook at some stuff. I don't know about you all this time, and it's like, really? The idolatry of it for many. Fact is, it once unified us. Now it divides us like everything else. I'm just done. Just me. Just me. And except for baseball, by the way. I, I mean, we have to have limits to these things. Um, Is God first or is career first? While I'm at it, is God first or is paying your bills first? I'm on a roll. Is God first or is what you really want first? Is God first or would you rather sleep than spend a few minutes with Him each day? Is God first or is your comfort first? Is God first or is your boyfriend or girlfriend first? Is God first or is the car or boat or camper you dream about first? Is God first or is your job first? Is God first or is your family first? Is God first or are you mad at me right now? <laughs> Listen, this passage is about how much you love God and whether or not He's first or second to the world and the things of the world in your life. He is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now remember this book of James is written primarily to followers of Christ. This is written to the persecuted church, to those who've already endured some stuff and they've stayed with it. These folks have all made a heartfelt commitment to follow Jesus and serve God. This is written to those who have demonstrated their commitment to Christ in a public ceremony called baptism. 
That's where we take our stand for Jesus and nail down our decision to follow Christ, even knowing that means we will no longer fit in with the world. Not all of you, but most of you made the decision to take your stand with Christ in baptism at some point, remember? In effect, you got married to Jesus that day. The Bible actually teaches that he's the groom and we're the bride. Baptism is like the wedding, an outward sign of an inward decision. Baptism sort of makes it official because that's when the rest of the church sees that you are all in. Baptism is the covenant-making ceremony, again, like a wedding, before witnesses who are supposed to hold you accountable to your vows. In this case, vows to follow Jesus. So how are you doing with your marriage to Christ? Are you keeping your covenant relationship with God pure? Or are you in some way committing adultery on God? James says that when you stray from God, going back to the world for acceptance and fulfillment and happiness and pleasure, looking for love in all the wrong places, you become an adulterer in God's sight. Will he take you back? Yes, he will. But while you're gone, you are aligning yourself with God's enemy. And why would you ever want to do that? It's not wise to fan the jealousy of God to flames. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, like it's no big deal, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So now what? What are you supposed to do with this information? Well, I think we can get some answers from the second equation that I'm pulling out of this passage, which is this, number two. Submission to God, submission to God equals grace from God. Continue on in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. So following the verse about us placing ourselves at enmity with God when we become friends with the world, James relents just a bit, doesn't he? He says, but he gives more grace. I love our God. And then James tells us what we need to do. He says, lay down your pride, get down on your knees and submit to God. In other words, repent. He says, put God back on the throne of your heart. Agree with him about what he said in your spirit today. Tear down any idols that might provoke him to jealousy and submit to his lordship. When you do that, you'll find his grace waiting in full measure and as much as you need. James once again echoes both the book of Proverbs and the teachings of Christ when he writes, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus shared this idea in Matthew 23, 12. The same principle was expressed about a thousand years prior in Proverbs 3, 4, or 3, 34. So James uses ancient scripture and the words of Jesus to support this point that submission to God is the key to receiving grace for life. Given the daunting task of following Christ in the world of sin, more of his grace is something we need to receive in daily doses. James says that since God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, we must humbly submit to God as Lord of our lives. It's probably something we need to do about every Sunday or more. When we're willing to actually do it, not just in our minds, but through real choices, that's when we find more grace. And that's how our relationship with God can be restored even after our adultery against Him. This whole passage is really about our relationship with God. Notice the word submit. 
Everybody's favorite word. Submission is a relationship concept. Paul told the church at Ephesians, uh, the church of Ephesus, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to submit to one another if we want to have good relationships in the church. The book of Hebrews chapter 13 speaks of submitting to the spiritual leadership of pastors in the church, but also wants pastors not to lord it over uh, the flock. And so in many ways, we submit back to you as well. Ephesians 5 tells uh, us that wives are to submit to their husbands. If this is the first time you're hearing this, not, you know, sorry about that. There's, that's a whole other thing. Uh, but it also says that husbands are to submit to Christ even to the point of dying to our own desires in order to put hers first, which really is the definition of submission as well. In truth, no relationship works very well without mutual submission. Mutual submission is key in friendships, in marriage, in family relationships, in church family relationships. But what about our relationship with God? Could there even be mutual submission required in our relationship with Him? What would God's submission to us look like? I'd say it would look like more grace. Well, he doesn't have to do it. Isn't that a choice that God makes? And now I come back around to what I said at the beginning and the title of this message, God first. God doesn't ask anything of us that he hasn't already given of himself. He's already given you this grace, my friend. You just need to submit to him in order to receive it. Additionally, it's the very grace of God at work in us that enables us to submit to him. So you see, it all starts with God. God first. Now, we'll be continuing some of these thoughts next week as we cover the other equations in this passage, but there's really just one big thing that I want you to take home today, and that is the fact that God is always ready to take you back. It's crazy, amazing grace. That's exactly what we see in this text. That's the nutshell version. It starts with almost name-calling, but it ends with more grace. God never gives up on you. His love is unfailing. His love is always faithful. His grace is always available. All you need to do is return and humbly submit. He's always ready to take you back. I'll close with this. According to an account from New Tribes Mission, some Bible translators were attempting to get the Bible into the language of a local African tribe. When they discovered that the verbs for this particular language consistently ended with the option of one of three vowels. They explained that almost every verb can end in an I, an A, or a U. However, they found that the word for love only ever ended with an I or an A. Why no U version of the word for love? All the other words had all three versions, but not the word for love. The word for love was either V or Dva, depending on the situation, but again, Strangely absent was the devu form of this verb. And so as the Bible translation team worked with the tribal leaders looking for a way to better co communicate the concept of God's love to them, they began to ask questions. They asked, could you devi your wife? Yes, they answered. That would mean that the wife had once been loved, but the love was now gone. Okay. So they asked, could you dva? your wife. Yes, they responded. That kind of love depends on the wife's action. She would be loved as long as she remained faithful and took good care of her husband. And then the translators asked, could you devote your wife? 
Everyone in the room left. It was all men in the room, by the way. It was the elders of the tribe there. They left. Of course not, they replied. If you said that, you would have to keep loving your wife no matter what she did, even if she never got you water or never made you meals. Even if she committed adultery, you would have to just keep on loving her. No, we would never say devu in that context. It just doesn't exist. The missionaries sat quietly for a while thinking about John 3.16, and then one of them asked, could God devu people? According to the translators, there was complete silence for three or four minutes. But then tears began to trickle down the weathered faces of the elder men of this tribe. Finally, they responded, do you know what this would mean? This would mean that God kept loving us over and over while all the time we rejected his great love. He would be compelled to love us even though we've sinned more than any people. And so the translators had found the perfect word for communicating the love of God to this previously unreached group of people. Indeed, it would be nice if we had a completely separate word for the love of God as well, because it truly is like no other love in this world. So what do you do with this passage? What do you do with this message? How do you respond? Well, if nothing else, hopefully your understanding of God's love has grown. But I'm guessing many of you may also be, have areas where you need to submit to God. Maybe there's something in your life that has you a little more friendly with the world than you should be. Something that's keeping you from putting God first. Maybe you need to repent because you've left your first love, God. And maybe you've even driven him to jealousy. Is it possible the opening of this passage is actually what God would say to you? today would he address you as an adulterer or an adulteress in terms of how your heart has strayed from him but if so that means the rest of it is for you too but he gives more grace submit to God draw near to him and he will draw near to you Take a moment to do that in your heart, even right now. Still others of you may never have responded to God's love in the first place. Jesus didn't die on the cross for nothing. He died for you. It's a gift from God. But you know what? Gifts must be received. This, this gift must be received by faith. You need to say yes to God. You need to understand Jesus died for your sin. He died because you're an adulterer and adulteress on God who created you and has a claim on your life. You need to commit your life to him. Get married to Jesus for life and eternity. Let him be your savior, your Lord. Be his bride. We got a, we got a wedding coming up. We got a marriage ceremony coming up. By that I mean baptism. So you can like seal this deal. But maybe today you need to do it in your heart. 
take the step of faith. Would you pray with me, everybody? Just take a moment, and if, if you're in the camp of you've never really done that, could you just do it right now? Would you just be willing to say yes? Yes, he's calling you out. He's calling out your sin, adulterers and adulteresses, but don't miss the rest of it. He's waiting to forgive. He's waiting for you to submit, to draw near to him so he can draw near to you. Jesus is the way. He bridges the gap of our sin. He, he's already done the hard part. Would you just receive what he's done, the gift? In some way, you've been rejecting it your whole life. You know it. You've had moments God has spoken to your heart. And in the old way, we used to say, your, your hands are gripping the pew. And you just haven't really said yes. You've never really fully committed your heart to him. You've never said, I do, to Jesus. He would really like for you to. He loves you. You can say it today in your heart. You can say it to the rest of us in a few weeks through baptism. Maybe today's the day of decision to you, for you. Tell God and tell me later if you would so I can help you think through that. Just tell him. Just say, yes, I need Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to know his love and I want to live for him. He's the only one who never will disappoint. He'll never let you down. He has a place for you in heaven for eternity, even though he said in this world you'll have trouble. He said, don't, don't be afraid because I've overcome this world. I'll help you through this world, and then I'll spend eternity with you in paradise. Turn to Jesus today. Thank you, God, for the moment when that happened in my life. Thank you for the, the fact that it happened at some point in many of our lives. Thank you that because of that, we have a church together, that we've come together in unity over this gospel. And we want to live for Jesus, and we want to do it together as a church and as a community, Lord. Help us to turn away from the world. It's in any way that you've convicted a heart today, help us to follow through. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.